This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, the mystical positivist. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with the very Reverend Donald P. Richmond, Doctor of Divinity, a priest oblate with the Reformed Episcopal Church and Order of St. Benedict. He is a graduate of several colleges and seminaries, as well as the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies and the Maryvale Ecclesiastical Institute. Having trained in Byzantine iconography, Father Richmond has a keen interest in the intersection of theology and liturgical arts. Author of chap books and over 500 published articles, poetry and art in a wide array of respected periodicals and journals, Father Richmond has published extensively on the Ancient Future Faith Network under either the Abbey or the Inner Monk and at Seedbed.com. Father Donald Richmond, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for having me. It's a joy. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, uh, a pleasure to get to uh, pre-record this interview on our own meditation room. Um, so, um, because you've appeared previously on the show, I want to invite you to fill us in on what's been happening for you since you last appeared. We're, we're now recording this in 2019, and you were on the show in 2015. Mm-hmm. So, what have you been up to? Well, to carry on with our 2015 discussion, I'm still, as are most people, in pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, I was working with the Reformed Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. I was a chaplain for the Reformed Episcopal Church Mm -hmm. and doing a diversity of things, such as uh, leading workshops for the local monastery, uh, working with people who wanted to expand their counseling ministries and church, and do a variety of other things. So, so let me just make sure I understood that last point about. So you were counseling counselors essentially. Is Correct. That, is that I was training of... counselors to become and develop counseling programs within their churches. I see. And was that restricted to the um, Reformed Episcopal Church? Or? No. Okay. Um, I had people who were Baptists. Uh, to people who were Pentecostal, to Roman Catholics, mm. to people who didn't have any um, real faith affiliation, mm. but were interested in a broad spirituality. Well, that, that's interesting to me, and that, this actually is is a point that I find find that I want to sort of discuss a little bit more. I don't I don't know how I don't recall how much we might have touched on it in our previous conversation, but I'm just um, I'm struck already. By the by, the wide um, array of people that you have um, served as a teacher for, in this in, in this particular case, um, uh, with regard to counseling, mm-hmm. and I assume it's sort of spiritual counseling. Uh, Correct, spiritual direction, spiritual formation. It mm-hmm. depends on which religious or spiritual group, yeah. but broadly speaking. Um, in my professional life, mm-hmm. I do provide counseling. I'm a certified counselor. Okay. I have a master's degree and a doctorate in counseling. 
but um, I really emphasize on spiritual growth, spiritual development, um, and that's what I capitalize upon. So, so I, I'm curious if when you uh, approach people, then it's, it, I take it it's from a non-denominational point of view in that, in that regard, or are you... Very much so. Um, when I was um, serving in a parish full-time, I'm sure I annoyed my parishioners because I didn't see myself as trying to attract people to my particular parish. Mm -hmm. I saw myself as an usher on their journey. Mm -hmm. And so if my particular parish did not fit their particular need, I would help them find that place where they could grow in God more effectively. And I think that's still my role. Mm -hmm. I have uh, a particular orientation. I embrace that. I have um, a wonderful experience of life in God, but I'm not suggesting that that experience that works for me is necessarily going to work for everyone else. Okay, and and I think I'm partly interested in um, the, the maybe the nuances of how people struggle with finding spiritual meaning in their lives if they're coming from, let's say, a Christian background or if they're attracted to elements of Buddhism or you know, Eastern uh, traditions. Um, do you see, do you, do you get that full spectrum or, or do you mainly work with people who are um, maybe looking around the, uh, the Christian tradition? Mostly I would say people who are broadly within the Christian tradition, some of whom have become isolated because of life experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also deal with people who are uh, committedly Buddhist or nominally Buddhist, what I would call um, rather uncharitably American Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, it wouldn't be the first time on this show. No, we would uh, not. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking. Like we, we, it, it's a not unfamiliar topic of discussion mm -hmm. <laughs> for the show. But it, it, I find that I'm most effective with people who have abandoned the Christian faith and have abandoned it for the wrong reasons. Huh. And they have a set of ideas about who Jesus is, what Christianity is about, um, and often this is due to abuses that they've experienced. I'm not suggesting that their abuses aren't real. Mm -hmm. What I'm suggesting is if you're going to reject Christianity more specifically, if you're going to reject Christ, then do it for the proper reasons instead of the improper reasons. And so I do a lot of work with people like that. So an improper reason would be um, rejecting on the basis of um, someone who allegedly was a representative of the faith uh, acting in ways that are not particularly consistent with the faith. Correct. Uh, there is, within the Christian tradition, historically, a lot of rigidity. Mm -hmm. um, there has been a lot of emphasis upon your in and your out. And I'm not suggesting there isn't a place for you're in and you're out. Mm -hmm. But this rigidity, um, I don't believe, reflects the heart of Christ or the essence of Christianity. And I want people to know Christ, and I want people to know Christianity. Uh, Thomas A. Kempis, one of my favorite authors, I think I quoted him last time on the radio program with you, said that um, 
the person who sees all things as one can peaceably rest in God. And I want people to experience that unitive way that is found in Jesus. And more often than not, I find that people reject Christianity, reject Christ, because they've had a bad experience Mm -hmm. with a representative, but haven't had a real encounter with God. I want them to have the encounter. That's my passion. Well, I, I, want, I want to talk about more aspects of this because this is, uh, this is very interesting to me. But I, I realize that I kind of interrupted you. Oh, no. And my first question, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just, I, I, want to, I want you to complete the, your description of what you've been up to the last few years and we can get back into these specific, very interesting topics. Well, I find this an interesting story. If it bores you, please, please forgive me. All right. Um, But in 2015, as I mentioned, uh, I had been about three years as a chaplain doing a diversity of ministries with various people and organizations. I had assumed that the agency that I had left in 2012 um, was going to be the end of my relationship with that particular agency as an agency. I still maintained many of the friends there. But I stopped this, working. This was, a, this was a, a place where you were working to make money. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. Okay. Um, and uh, I left kind of it. Counseling in 20, or something. Correct. Agency. It okay. was a counseling agency. Mm-hmm. And I had assumed that leaving in 2012, based upon education, experience, positive experience in a parish, being a friend with the Archbishop of Canterbury, I thought I was an immediate shoe-in for a pastoral position. Uh. I could not find a full-time pastoral position if I paid you a million dollars at the time. And I could find no rational reason for that. Mm -hmm. And so I became angry because Mm -hmm. I would, I could not understand why Mm -hmm. with all that God had given me and people had acknowledged God had given me, I could not land a full-time pastoral position. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that um, a friend of mine who was retiring from the pastorate wrote an article. And in this article, he posed a question or made a statement. The statement was, uh, a pastor has to have a passion for the pastorate. Mm. And I began to think about, do I have a passion for the pastorate Mm -hmm. or do I have a passion for the people? Hmm. Interesting distinction. It it, it began to really rattle in my soul. Mm -hmm. And one night as I was getting into bed, I turned to my wife and I said, do you think I have a passion for the pastorate? And immediately... She said, oh, absolutely not. You really have a passion for the kids you worked with back in 2012. Hmm. So I got on the phone the next day, called my friend, who's the clinical director for that agency. Mm -hmm. And he said, call this person immediately. I called them, and within a very short period of time, I was back on the payroll. And that's what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in a different department than I was. Mm -hmm. My role at this point is dealing with kids in crisis Mm -hmm. and often kids in crisis who have dual diagnoses. 
So we have kids with a mental health disorder and a kid with an addictive disorder. Mm -hmm. And then I was transferred uh, about a year and a half ago to a department that just deals with kids needing crisis care. Mm. Um, But I was surprised at the journey that God brought me on because I had assumed being trained as a priest, Mm -hmm. having served in a pastorate, being a success in that, Mm -hmm. I was going to continue to do that. That was farthest from the truth in my experience. And I thrive in what I'm doing now because I've I found my bliss. I found my passion. And surprisingly, it wasn't what I thought it was. <laughs> and I thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate the, the story in the sense that sometimes we try to move in certain directions. Yes. And... and and we think we're supposed to. And we think we're supposed to. For whatever to. reasons they, there might be. Right. And you feel, and then when you, when the universe provides resistance, mm-hmm. then how do we respond to that? Mm-hmm. And, that and that's, an, you, you really outlined a very uh, elegant way to surrender to what is and then suddenly discover that, oh, there's something else for me to be doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have historically taught is what I've called the sanctification of the relaxed hand. Mm -hmm. Um, Learning to hold everything with an open-handed heart. Nice nice phraseology. And I found myself, uh, unfortunately, not living what I believed. Mm -hmm. And so my journey has brought me to a point of learning consistently and persistently to live with an open-handed, open-hearted, open-minded approach to people, places, things, experiences. Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, it's a subtle thing, though, I find that, we, you know, when, it, when have you tried enough? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, we have to make efforts. Um, Absolutely. And, and when do we know that uh, uh, to relax and to allow for different things to happen than what we think are supposed to happen? And that's a, it's a, it's a subtle balance. I mean, it's just part of the dance of living, I guess. It is, and that's why I um, emphasize spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the Celts used to say that a man without a spiritual director is like a person without a head. <laughs> and there are times where we don't know what to do or where to go. Uh, we don't know whether we should persist in our practice or not. Mm-hmm. And so a spiritual director can help us gain perspective. Well, we've had we've had you know some uh, um, spiritual directors on on the show before, and um, our good friend Ruapol being the person who leaps to mind first. But um, you used earlier uh, you you used that phrase, and I think you also used the word. Spiritual formation, if I'm not, or the phrase spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Is that a synonym or is that different than spiritual directorship? Um, spiritual direction itself is a bit of a misnomer. Good. Because in, in, in actual fact, uh, a spiritual director does not direct. Mm-hmm. Um, Suggests. The, the, uh, well, <laughs> she or he might suggest, but really a director is a conduit by which uh, a conversation, an ongoing conversation between God, the directee, and the director take place. Mm -hmm. And so 
what that person does is open the channel, so to speak, and then act as a voice at times of that channel. Spiritual formation is once you have direction, how do you act upon it? And I would call that the practice of religion. Uh, people today have a bad taste in their mouth about religion. Uh, I don't see it that way. I see religion as taking action upon the faith that we have in a constructive, wholesome manner. And is the, does the spiritual director have a role in that spiritual formation aspect of practice? Or is a- absolutely. That- my, my spiritual director uh, used to be the abbot of the monastery uh, of which I'm a member. I still am a member, but now I'm nine hours away, so my current director is my priest. Mm. Even though I am a priest, I have a priest who is my director. And he has been urging me uh, to engage in certain practices that historically have not resonated with me, so Mm -hmm. it's new ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yes, he's giving me very clear guidelines, although it's not direction in that I don't have to obey that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's saying, you might try these practices Mm -hmm. and you might find your heart opening more. So there is that direction towards a practice that forms me more perfectly into the image and likeness of Christ. I see. So that's the that and and you've just articulated where the word form and formation how that how they articulate with the activity of religion in the way that you're discussing. Right, and the idea of religion is, I believe, it comes from the idea of a, a ligament, something mm-hmm. that joins us together and helps us to move forward. Mm-hmm. So true religion, according to the Christian tradition, is care for the widow and the orphan those who are in need, the marginalized, the needy. Um, How does one move forward in that, in their life, in practical ways? That's the practice of religion. So I'm interested in, when I look at what religion means in different communities, I was just listening to some uh, discussion recently about the uh, Jewish faith and the idea put forward that I've heard other times that uh, in that tradition doesn't matter what you believe simply matters what you practice and so it's very practice oriented mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in some of the eastern traditions I, I find that uh, practice and uh, actions meditation, other forms of practice uh, pujas in the Indian tradition uh, are more emphasized uh, belief isn't doesn't play the same role mm-hmm. and in Christianity from what I'm getting from you or what I feel from you it seems like there, there's more of an engagement and a practice element that's uh, important and it's the lived experience of the religion and yet I think one of the reasons that uh, people are in resistance to forms of Christianity in American society is because there's been this emphasis on belief mm-hmm. and almost it's almost like this contract that if you if you believe these things it doesn't matter how you act as long as you can uh, spout the beliefs and then we then you're signaling that you're part of the team mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm interested how you if you first of all do you do you see those same things and uh, and uh, how do you respond to that uh, those distinctions belief is is the womb of behavior And if we are believing properly, we always act upon it. 
a simple, silly illustration of this is if I'm lost and I am seeking direction, I will um, go to what I believe to be an authority Mm -hmm. and I will ask for direction. And if I believe that person, I will behave in a manner that reflects that I believe that. Um, I think the problem has been at times with Christianity, particularly um, since the Enlightenment, is that we've overemphasized the mind and detached that from how we live it in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, and I think Christianity teaches, Christ teaches, that as we believe, so we behave. And I think that's an important thing. And when we get to the essence of Christianity, it's about loving your neighbor, loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, I've done a lot of study over the past decade or so on the Beatitudes, and there's a wonderful section in the Beatitudes which you find in the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 5. And it talks about Um, steps in spiritual progress. I don't like using the word steps because I don't think it you do this, you do that, then you have this experience and you follow it to the next step. Sort of like uh, Christianity being a self-help library. I, I don't believe that at all. But as a generalization, when you look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the humble, there comes a point where the question or the statement is made, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or saintliness. I think the call of every human being is to be a saint. Mm -hmm. So there's this hunger for holiness. And so the question, at least in my mind, that arises is how do I live a saintly life? How do I become and be holy? Well, for many people, we think that the hunger is the answer. I desire this, therefore I'm going to have that. Well, we find that in the Beatitudes, there's the hunger, but the fulfillment of that purity of heart doesn't come until two verses later. So you have the hunger, but the fulfillment of that, the purity of heart, comes two verses later. What comes between the hunger and the experience? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if we're talking about belief and behavior, the Christian believes that we must love our neighbor as ourselves, and the way we express that is through showing mercy in our daily lives to anyone and everyone indiscriminately of who they are, what they believe, or how they behave. Um, I don't know if I'm confusing you. No, not at all. Mercy is at the center of Christianity, of Christ. Well, I I, I guess what I'm I'm intrigued by is um, uh, years ago, um, there's a book by a guy named Jacob Jacob Needleman called Lost Christianity. Mm -hmm. And and he starts off more or less at the beginning of the book saying we have this injunction to love your neighbor but the trick is how do you do that it's not as you as you just very articulately point out it, it doesn't it, it, there's not some kind of automatic 
um, process by which that happens even though you set the intention or the desire to be able to do that so there has to be there has to be something in between the realization you know the formation of the intention and the realization of the intention and I think that ties into the original question you asked about my journey and what has happened since 2015 and mm-hmm. I need to be really careful about this because it can be taken too far mm-hmm. back in 2015 um, I don't think I was dogmatic mm-hmm. um, at all however one of the things that I've learned between 2015 and 2019 is is becoming even less dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I get it. And so, in regards to belief and behavior, and this may sound odd, but I'll quote from the Tao Te Ching about this. Um, there comes a point where belief and behavior no longer exist. You just do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tao says, the wise hold to no opinion. They see the need of others. Um, they all, it also says in the Tao Te Ching that the wise do nothing, and yet nothing remains undone. Right. Why? Well, because you are so integrated as a human being that the act of mercy is just an action of who you are. It is your way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. You are merciful. And I think in regards to Christianity and a relationship with Jesus Christ living in the world as mercy where you're not seeing opinions you're not holding to doctrines you are living Christ in the world is where I've been moving since 2015 so to what extent uh, would you say you the the dogma fell away uh, and this uh, very experiential or uh, in practice uh, a mode uh, arose. I mean, I don't recall you being uh, particularly dogmatic. So, so you, I think you're talking about a relatively subtle uh, expression of dogma even in your own experience. I think there's a difference between one's heart and how one at times expresses her or himself. Uh, I know that within my heart there were times, and even today, where I am highly dogmatic about certain things. Mm -hmm. And I need, at times, to let that go. Truth is truth, whether I'm dogmatic about it or not. And the issue for me is, uh, sorry to be redundant, how do I live love in the world? Mm -hmm. How do I express mercy in my everyday life? And even that is is a bad way of putting it because um, when you say I need to express mercy into the world, at least it says to me that I have something to offer you who are lesser than me, Mm -hmm. therefore I am expressing mercy to you. Um, So language has its restrictions as well. So I want to move even beyond that idea of I'm extending mercy. I'm just hoping um, to live mercy in the world. I want to be a saint. Jacques Martin, who was a French philosopher of the 20th century, said the greatest sorrow is not to be a saint. And my passion is 
to be a saint. I believe it's the passion of every human being to be a saint. Mm -hmm. And if we want to be saints in the world, it is the way of mercy. Right. So, um, am I overwhelming you? I apologize. No, not not in the least. Actually, (laughs) I'm. um, uh, I want to relate what you've just been saying to one of the things that I. Uh, noted in the uh, curriculum vitae that you uh, sent us uh, before this interview and um, and one of the one of the things that you you list on there is that you built a small congregation of of diverse people into a large congregation with shared priorities principles and practices so here you've got this movement between um, diverse peoples who nevertheless share um, priorities, principles, and practices, and um, and that's interesting to me because I think I think one of the things you know Christianity has been the dominant religion for literally millennia mm-hmm. in in uh, among certain parts uh, and peoples in the world, mm-hmm. and and yet um, to keep it alive and um, Make mercy mean something uh, real in in practice means that you have to um, engage with people who may have very different um, who may start off from very different um, places have different priorities uh, value different principles mm-hmm. and it, in that here you're talking about creating shared principles and priorities. So talk, tell us a bit more about what that's how that how one accomplishes that. Um, I hesitate about the the word, and again, language fails us many times. <clears throat> Some people have suggested that any form of language is a lie, mm-hmm. but of course, I don't think that's entirely true. We have to be able to communicate. But the idea of accomplish, um, I hesitate about. Sure. Um, but. That said, when a person encounters the the risen Christ, the living Christ, not just as an idea, because there are ideas about Jesus. We can read the four Gospels as an example. It gives us a narrative about Jesus. But when we actually experience that, not just as an intellectual truth or an emotional experience, but we know and I use that word as, as the Bible uses it, in a term of intimacy. We come into dynamic intimacy with Jesus. It changes the head, the heart, and the hands. And when our heads and our hearts and our hands are changed, there is a unity amongst people that is created. And so are we trying to accomplish a purpose? Well, to a certain degree, yes. We're, we're trying to bring people into that unitive life. But to a certain degree, that's only experienced by leading you into the presence of Jesus himself, encountering Jesus for yourself. And then once that encounter has been experienced, to live that through your life. There's, we can set agendas, like when we read the uh, letters of St. Paul, he's saying, do this, don't do that. Um, but it's interesting that St. Paul, in the midst of saying, do this, don't do that, also says, to me, all things are permissible, but to me, all things are not 
profitable. So the Christian wants to live from a position not of permissibility, what can I get away with, but how can I profit myself? How can I profit my brother, my sister? How can I profit my neighbor? How can I profit the world? And that means in some ways allowing oneself to live a surrendered life and a sacrificial life. So accomplishment, um, I think it's living in the, the risen Christ more than anything else. And that unifies us and moves us ahead. So you've, you've used the term the risen Christ a couple of times, and I'd like to uh, understand that uh, turn of phrase. Uh, because in, in some ways, in what you're describing, I, I hear... Um, the, the a deepening of a something that's uh, as natural as natural can be for a human being, and yet on the other hand, the language can also be seen as um, almost like some sort of uh, metaphysical special effects kind of uh, <laughs> journey yeah. of uh, visions and things like that. <clears throat> and but what I I'm sensing from you is that when you speak about uh, uh, the Christ arising and having an intimacy with Christ, that there's a kind of a clarity, but it's not necessarily a clarity that is, uh, uh, you know, embedded in special effects as much as it's just a kind of a certainty or a, uh, uh, one might even say an ease or a, uh, an interior silence around this project. Uh, I think that's a good, good way to say it. Um, from an historic perspective, Christ did physically, not just spiritually, rise from the dead. That means that there is a living Christ with whom we can have a relationship. Um, that is, I believe, what the goal or what we as Christians seek to accomplish for you, whoever you may be, to have the experience of that living Christ in your life where you can really know God. Now there's always the mystery of God. Uh, no matter how long we live, uh, and I believe our lives move into eternity, we will never perfectly know God. There's always the mystery of God that we have to deal with. But the other part of that is um, God reveals God's self. And God wants to have a relationship with human beings. And the way to do that may be different from individual to individual or denomination to denomination. But there is a path. There is a way. And we can know that and come to know God as God reveals God's self. I don't know if I'm coming yeah. to the... Well, you, you are, and it just raises a question. That what comes up for me is, is the, you know, when you speak of uh, uh, Christ, you know, dying and being resurrected, mm -hmm. uh, is it essential to the experience and the, uh, the lived experience that you're talking about that one treat that as a, a literal historical fact, or is that, uh, is it equally... Uh, useful as a, a metaphorical fact, and I, and what I mean by that is that in in some ways when when I look in certain traditions, particularly traditions that are what I call 
spiritually oriented and may have some roots in the Christian tradition, there's an understanding of you know, what it means to be dead and what it means to rise again uh, uh, can be understood in part by the modes of consciousness and experience. Like we identify, if we're identifying with our identity, if we're identifying with our ego, if we're identifying with our thoughts about the world, there's a kind of a, a, a sleepwalking character to life. When that falls away, there's there's indeed a sense of rising. There's an awakening. An awakening. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, uh, a, a term like Christ has risen uh, feels very appropriate for that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And yet that experience to me is, uh, uh, you know, you know, natural and inherent in practice for the human being by the nature of our being and our relationship to God. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that it uh, depends on a historical fact. Okay, well, well uh, it, let me take an excursion for a minute. Sure. Uh, I, I, I know you didn't say this, but it sort of feels like, can we be advanced in our spiritual walk by having sort of a Joseph Campbell approach to things. Um, Sure, absolutely. Um, If you don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, but that is a spiritual principle by which I can grow in God, I think there are advantages to that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a better way. It's very hard for people in our um, country, in our world today, in a um, post-enlightenment, post-Christian society to believe in miracles. But I make a choice between, and again, I know you didn't use the words, Mm -hmm. I, I, I can be benefited by a Joseph Campbell approach to that idea. But it's sort of like I can have a picture of my deceased wife in the corner of my room and I can imagine we are having conversations and in some way she is living and existing or I can actually believe that she is risen from the dead and in fact she is risen from the dead and I can in fact have a conversation with her as a living living being well in regards to Jesus Christ that actually happened I don't have a relationship with an idea as true as that idea may be I have a relationship with a living, breathing being who through, using the Christian tradition, the Holy Spirit is placed within all people generally because of creation, but is in his church specifically through covenant, a covenantal relationship by which that intimacy can be enjoyed. So again, can we generally, if we just believe that it wasn't an historic fact, but is a spiritual principle be benefited? Absolutely. But I think that God has deeper intimacies for us than just the idea of that. He wants us to know the reality of that. Well, this is interesting because um, I'm reminded of, the in the Buddhist tradition, the uh, uh, paired principles of great faith and great doubt. In other words, <clears throat> the idea or the understanding is that is that both are necessary, this complementary pair. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm, confirm for me, one way or the other, if you will, um, that um, 
in adopting the position that you're that that you are um, uh, articulating here. Um, paired with that would also be the the realization that great doubt is a natural part of the mind, is a natural part of our experience, is not to be dismissed or denigrated or rejected, but actually both are appropriate at different moments mm-hmm. for for different for 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 the different purposes of each moment, but also for a shared greater purpose or direction. Is that a fair way to describe what you're saying? Absolutely. And I, th- I like your Buddhist idea, great, great belief and or yeah, great, great faith and great, great, great doubt. Great I, I'm certainly no Buddhist or Taoist expert, although I've been mm-hmm. reading Buddhist and Taoist literature for 45 years. Sure. Uh, but I think there, that's, that's a good um, introduction to exactly what I'm, I'm moving towards. And I'll give you an illustration of this from the New Testament. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Mm-hmm. And he has just come from Jerusalem. And they tried to kill him. And so he's standing around with his <clears throat> disciples. And he says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. And Philip says to him, Lord... They tried to kill you there. Why are you bothering to go back to Jerusalem? This is not a good idea. Jesus doesn't even bother to answer the question. He turns around and he moves towards Jerusalem. The interesting thing is, Philip turns to the other disciples and says to them, let us go with him so that we might also die with him. I'm a big fan of doubt. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers. I don't believe that as we hear about Christianity today or as we read the New Testament, we're getting all the answers. Mm-hmm. There is plenty of room for doubt. But there has to be enough of an encounter with the living Christ where we can actually turn and say, let us go with him so that we might die with him. Because in order to exercise mercy, whatever that may mean, there has to be a thousand deaths, small d deaths, Mm -hmm. that we pass through, sacrifices that we make in order to extend that mercy. As an example, if I give $5 to somebody on the street, there is in some way a small death that takes place because now I robbed myself of my latte. (laughs) Um, But many of us, including myself, could benefit a great deal by dying a little bit more. But it's only the person who has experienced the reality of the living God who can do that without it being self-referential. And God wants us to move away from a religion that is self-referential in the worst sense of what that means, because there's a better sense of what that means, to an other referential where it's it's not even about God. It's about that other person and loving them in the moment to the fullest you are able to do so. And so if we're talking about idea or genuine intimacy, I could be wrong, but I think you have to have enough intimacy to be able to let go of the self-referential stuff 
and to die to yourself in a manner that benefits human beings. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's very clear to me, and, and uh, in, in the sense of what you were describing before, um, again, that seems like a very, that's a, a very immediate relationship uh, with the divine mm-hmm. that um, really doesn't reference, I mean, at some point it's so immediate that it doesn't even reference uh, the stories or the traditions. Uh, and that's where I'm talking about the abandoning the abandonment of dogma right. that, uh, of doctrine because it, it falls away you're you're living in the living christ so in a sense you know doctrine dogma practice is is a support and it can be a uh launching pad in a in a, in a sense mm-hmm. and and i guess i don't know if you would say this but uh certainly other traditions have their own kinds of launching pad, but, mm-hmm. but ultimately, you know it when you're there, or maybe you don't know it if you're being completely a non-self-referential, mm-hmm. because knowing it doesn't really become a factor. It's just that you are acting then from the heart, or maybe that's not even the right way to put it. You're acting in a way that, as you said, is appropriate for what is uh, happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. You're responding. You're responding completely to what is happening in the moment. Yes, absolutely. You're being in the moment. You, the mind falls away, the heart falls away. It's just you are being Christ in the moment. So, so <laughs> do you want? Well, I wanted. To, I wanted to bring something else up, but if you want to continue. Well, I, yeah, I wanted. To, I, I just want to get back to the uh, the practice element uh, briefly because we've we've kind of touched around this because. You're describing um, a state of being, mm-hmm. a sainthood, uh, mm-hmm. an embodying of the saint, or, or as you, you've also used the language of uh, embodying uh, uh, Jesus uh, just as a lived experience. Mm-hmm. And when I see someone in the street, uh, uh, you know, the human experience is that there's conflicting impulses. Mm-hmm. There'll be the uh, oh, I could give this person money. Oh well, wait, I, you know, uh, there's a, a thousand people out there. Do I give everyone a, uh, five dollars? What's the right thing to do? Um, and and that kind of conversation can go on. So I'm interested in just as an example of how you might use the occasion of the arising of that kind of interior conversation. How would you engage in the practice uh, around the inspiration you described to be as completely in this moment as saintly as possible. Okay. Uh, You mentioned examples, so let me give you an example. Uh, My wife and I, for many years, belonged to a small Bible study group. And these are wonderful people. Um, They love God. uh, They love the Bible. They want to serve God. They want to serve other human beings. Um, They're truly wonderful people. But I remember about a year and a half ago, uh, a Bible study was taking place. And right before the Bible study, most of the people at this meeting were complaining. And they were complaining about the damn Texans. <laughs> well, what were they complaining about the damn Texans for? Well, they were complaining about them because these people in Texas were actually daring to give food and water to the Mexicans crossing the border illegally. Mm. 
Um, my thinking at the moment was, and I said to my wife, this means sort of like Jesus when he said, if you care for the least of these, you're caring for me. Well, in regards to an example of that, we could get into huge questions about politics and religion, um, whether they should or should not have. Um, but in reality, what we have is people needing food and water. So whatever your theology may be, um, people need food and water. Give them damn food and water. There's no question about it. Um, so the spirituality is in fact just practical and logical. I have two shirts, you have none. I'm giving you one of my shirts. Um, I have more money, you have none. I'm giving you some, some of my money. Um, I may be a Republican, but it really doesn't matter. You need water and you need food. And that's living the Christian life. And I think that's what we're called to do. Does that answer the question? Well, it, 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 Politics it, falls aside. Religion falls aside. We have a, a hungering, and I need that in the broadest sense, a hungering and a thirsting human being whose soul is aching. What do we do in the moment? How do I meet that need? Right. And I, and I think what I'm asking is uh, um, even more specific for, for what, what kind of practice could one of those people who is complaining about the, you know, the uh, Texans <laughs> Be engaged in such that they have the possibility of, uh, in a moment, you know, suddenly being aware of what they're doing and having the uh, possibility or the freedom to take an action which is more consistent with the inspired word as opposed to the literal word that they may be uh, identified with. If I've understood the question properly, it comes down to. Um, First of all, I think reading what the Bible actually says. Being immersed in the message of what the Bible communicates. There's a difference between what the Bible contains, and there are some horrible things that the Bible contains, and what the Bible actually communicates. And we need to set aside our pet dogmas, pet doctrines, pet ideas, pet agendas, our politics, our religion, and come down to what Jesus actually was about, the trajectory of truth that Jesus communicated. And when we look at the Bible in that manner, and we seek to live Jesus in the world, sorry to be kind of um, cheesy, uh, but what would Jesus actually do? Mm -hmm. uh, if that's what you're talking about, um, I, that's well, that, well, that might actually be that 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 kind of inquiry might form the basis of uh, a certain kind of practice, and that's the kind of that's the question I'm asking. Um, uh, and I'm asking this partly because um, there are many people who are uh, versed in the Bible who uh, don't embody. Uh, Jesus in their lives uh, as right. completely as is possible. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to, you know, I mean, people may have aspirations and try, but mm -hmm. there's a practical issue of the degree to which human beings are identified with the narrative that they construct about the world around them and that they live in, embedded in that worldview 
and it is so complete that there's no sense of space between reality and that narrative. And practice, in my mind, is a uh, engaged activities that one can take that begin to loosen the grip of that narrative such that the possibility that you've been describing very eloquently is more accessible moment by moment. I, I don't I don't want to disappoint. I, I'm not sure there is a practice in the sense of I meditate every day. I think that's a good practice for everyone to engage in because it, it, it opens the heart, it opens the mind if you practice well. Um, I read and reflect upon the Bible every day. Um, I ask the question, what am I to do, Lord? But it ultimately comes down to, first of all, the real experience of the living Christ and then living in the living Christ. Um, it's practicing stealing from um, Brother Lawrence. It's, it's practicing the presence of God in your life. So wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be, or wouldn't a necessary component of that be a kind of inquiry as as you're as you're continually returning to? In other words, there's an inquiry about what am I doing, and um, what's its effect on me and my brother and sister, etc. And um, and in that sense, that's a sort of meta practice perspective, not the specifics of this prayer or that meditation or whatever other activity. All of which may help in, in yeah, this context. Right, right, right. Yeah, not not to dismiss them, but not to identify them as the same as this as this meta level of of establishing the importance of having that that open-handed grip that you were talking about or open-hearted hand that you were speaking of earlier um, and how do you do that unless you're establishing a habit of of inquiry at some level or in some way does that does that make sense to you right if we're if we're going thank you for that that lead because it helps me out okay um, if, we're, if we're talking about practice mm-hmm. and we are questioning the propriety of any action we take, mm-hmm. the question we should ask, because it can be a bit esoteric if we say, am I walking in Jesus? Mm-hmm. I, I can relate to that. It makes total sense in my heart and head that I walk, live in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But practically speaking, maybe a better question you need and we need to ask ourselves is, does what I am doing in the moment square with mercy? Mm-hmm. Does what I'm doing in the moment square with love? If it doesn't square with mercy and love, we're definitely on the wrong path. We're heading in the wrong direction. And so we need to constantly then realign ourselves with living in that. But I think and again, I hate to use contemporary words because I think there's a whole host of, a whole bunch of baggage that gets attached to that. Mm-hmm. But if you've encountered the risen Christ and you're experiencing the living Christ, mindfulness in the moment of whose you are um, 
is a good way to live mercifully in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that when I fall short using um, um, a statement that Christians often use, when I fall short of the glory of God, mm-hmm. or if I fail to be a saint in the moment, it's because I'm not mindful of whose I am in the moment. And if, if, uh, if I'm living mercifully, I know whom I belong to and whose I am. And I think mercy is that path, as I mentioned earlier in the program. Mm-hmm. You want to be holy. I think that's inherent to every human being. Even the worst of human beings and the worst of actions is a hunger for holiness. Mm-hmm. Wrongly expressed, but still a hunger. How do I live in mercy is the question we need to ask and answer well. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with the very Reverend Donald P. Richmond, Doctor of Divinity, a priest in the Reformed Anglican Church, and former chaplain and counselor. He has authored chapbooks and over 500 articles, poetry and art in a wide array of respected periodicals and journals. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue with our pre-recorded conversation in the studio with the very Reverend Donald P. Richmond, Doctor of Divinity, a priest in the Reformed Anglican Church, and former chaplain and counselor. He has authored chapbooks and over 500 articles, poetry and art, in a wide array of respected periodicals and journals. What I'm hearing then is that there is, you, you, you've identified a number of what I would call uh, practices, uh, no one of which is a silver bullet. Oh, no. And, and, but, you know, we, uh, a few weeks ago we were talking to a... Um, a guest on the show who is, uh, among other things, studying Advaita Vedanta, the uh, um, non-dual tradition in, uh, from the Indian subcontinent. And he made an interesting comment that in that tradition, meditation is important, but uh, uh, it's, it's sort of considered as, yeah, it, it helps loosen things up. But, yes. there's, but there's But there's still the hearing of the message or the hearing of the teaching that's a, a critical part. And so... Maybe in answering my own question earlier, you know, I, I was, I was, I was asking the question about, you know, how to, how do you loosen the grip of the narrative such that you can, you know, open up a little bit and, uh, as it were, behold the glory of God, mm-hmm. because when that, when, <laughs> when you're down here and you're, uh, uh, you know, you're complaining about Texans, or, mm-hmm. or other the Texans are us. Yeah, exactly, and 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 and, and so. There are practices, from what I hear you say, and an inquiry is one of those practices. Uh, inquiry is always trying to be aware of what one is doing, why one is doing it, and to ask the question, is this, is this right. serving mercy? Right. If I, if I take that narrative uh, to the next step, uh, 
people ask what's the Christian program there is no Christian program the program is Christ however we can do things like pray meditate uh, study uh, there are a whole host of things we can do that can open the, the heart and the head to be available to God so is that part of formation or is that part of what uh, if you were working with someone as a spiritual director would you help them be conscious of a program of things that they might do along these lines it depends on where the person is in their journey sometimes people need to have the encounter with Christ before they move on anywhere um, for many people it's just Jesus is an idea Christianity is a set of ideas mm -hmm. um, I see it and I believe the Bible teaches it as a dynamic encounter with the living God um, and so that person I want them to have that encounter another person may have been on the journey for a year or five years or 25 years or me now 40 or 42 years uh, I would guide one person differently than another person based upon the immediate need and so as an example 40 years down the line my spiritual director is saying no that practice isn't really good for you you need to it may have worked for 20 years for you but you're at a different place in your life now you need to let go of that now you need to do this okay um, so it's different but, so, go ahead. no no you go ahead I was just going to say just to recap every so the practice, you know, in a sense, in this relationship, then it, there's not one set of things. It's it's a dynamic conversation with the director too. It's a relationship. Yes. It's a rela well. An example would be again. I, I've always been poor on examples, but I'll try to give you another one. Oh, you've been um, pretty good in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, I do for my wife is I historically have bought her cut flowers. Hmm. My heart is right in this. I'm not doing it as a ritual. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because I love my wife. I want to show my wife that she is important to me, that I value her, that I will spend my money upon her and give her beautiful things. Uh, is that good? Well, yes, it is, up until the point your wife, as my wife said to me, uh, says, you know what, I really don't like cut flowers because that kills them. Why don't you bring me a plant instead? Um, I, I, I think that, that that's a, the principle that we, we need to learn. Part of our relationship is knowing um, who we're relating to and how most effectively to engage with them. And if it means not giving them flowers, then don't give them flowers. I have a friend who hates getting gifts at all. And I tend to be a giver. Uh, I like giving. Um, but to love this particular person well, I've had to learn, don't give her anything because she's going to get upset that you're giving something. So sometimes loving means not giving. It just depends upon the relationship. Does that answer with my illustrations, the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, although, of course, the, this last um, example that you used immediately makes uh, of the friend who has a hard time receiving well yes uh, absolutely um, and and that it, and it occurs to me that although most of the time you would, it would probably make sense to do as you as you're describing to respect 
her her expression of distaste mm-hmm. uh, and not subject her to having to repeat it. Um, I could also imagine a, a moment when it would be really important for her to receive something, not and 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 for her to see that that being dogmatic about that um, doesn't serve her her own growth, her own experience of her life, etc. And so, I've actually said to um, it may have been to this particular person, but I know I've said to others. I'm sorry. You just need to learn to receive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And 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 I like the way, just the way you said it. But but um, I want to get to a uh, quotation um, from one of the pieces in on the website seedbed.com that you oh. that you um, um, have written for, and uh, you have this quote because I think it's relevant to this topics that we've been discussing. Um, Uh, today, and uh, you write, every committed Christian who has been awakened and enlivened by God is a mystic. There are absolutely no exceptions. Mysticism is central to the revealed religion of the Bible. We are either mystics or we embrace a form of faith that is entirely foreign to biblical Christianity. Um, You then go on to say, Many believers have problems with mysticism. Almost always this is because they do not understand what mysticism is, its priority, purpose, and pneumatic potential. If not immediately dismissive of the topic, many imagine the ecstatic experiences of Teresa of Avila, the showings of Julian of Norwich, or the visions of Hildegard of Bingen as doctrinally dangerous. Some people might be reminded of the so-called stigmata of Francis of Assisi, and dismiss such an experience as Catholic. And others, sadly, may recall unfortunate experiences with charismaniacs, great word, by the way, who seem more interested in mania than charism. Um, When we read our Bibles, however, mystical experiences were frequently referenced. So um, there's a lot in that that I want I want you to comment on and I guess I'll just invite you to go with the first thing that comes <laughs> comes to your mind because uh, um, the um, but the basic thing is this is this assertion that you start with that um, mysticism is central or the or is Christianity mm-hmm. and vice versa so talk more about that if you would it, it's a, a, a reframing of what I've been saying throughout the program in which mm-hmm. I I believe in my heart of hearts mm-hmm. that there is an encounter with God to be enjoyed mm-hmm. there is ever deepening deepening intimacies with God that God's self wants us to have with God's self mm-hmm. and when we are not living in that, we end up with a Christianity that is devoid of practice. Mm-hmm. We have to have the encounter, or we don't live the life. And I would suggest that when people are not living in mercy, they're not living in the fullest encounter with God that they can have. Well, Mysticism is the author of all okay. p- positive action in the world. Okay. Well, that's a that's a that's a that's a good that's quote. a wonderful extension. That's a good quote. <laughs> I want a bumper sticker. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I can see it. Um, but 
Um, but then that invites the, the discussion, which is actually part of what I wanted to bring up. Um, because you're, if you're, the quote I, I read references the idea that not all believers are, or you say, have problems, that they have problems with mysticism, mm-hmm. which invites the, um, the discussion of the fact that um, when, you tr- when you're talking about having um, been awakened and alivened by an encounter with Christ or, um, and so forth, um, one of the things that has been that has character that it seems to me has characterized many many Christians in the 20th century and early 21st century that I that I see um, being quoted in on TV and in print etc. Um, is that there's like once you once you get this imprimatur imprimatur of of uh, um, Oh, I've had the encounter, and now no more, you know, there's no question about that anymore. I want to invite you to talk more about what this means, because I'm, he- I'm hearing you say in this conversation that it's not a, a one-time thing and then you rest on your laurels. There is and no like, laurels, because I can do, apart from practice, I mean, this, this is where language fails, I can do things to encourage that but I actually do nothing. Mm-hmm. It is God's grace to human beings because God wants to be experienced. Um, anyway. Okay. Well, I, but, 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 but I mean, I think, I, I think the question, you know, and this goes back to the, the piece there, is there are, and, and again, we're, we're dealing with the limitations of language, so yes. that this, I, that's why I want to clarify this. There are people in the Christian world who uh, make much of being born again. Yes, I am born again. I will. Okay. I will fully acknowledge that, right. and I'm happy to say so. So there, <laughs> and and, and the, there are people in the world who make much of being born again who don't seem to embody a uh, commitment to mercy as much as the statement is a you know almost feels to me like it is creates a separation or, or it uh, uh, mm-hmm. is very self-referential. We could even return, I think, to your story about the Bible study group folks who are castigating Texans who give food and drink. Yes. And, it's a, and so I think the, the, and I think what, you know, what Rob was, what I understood Rob to be asking is that to say that one is born again um, uh, is to have an experience and I, I'll use an example from the Zen tradition. Uh, you know, it's a very common uh, sort of in the Zen tradition a beginner's mistake to mistake your satori, which is a, mm-hmm. a an enlightenment experience where one has a, a breakthrough of clarity about oneself and or the lack of self in the larger context. To mistake that for enlightenment, which mm-hmm. means sort of like suddenly a, a phase change where one is no longer has to do anything. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, um, would I be correct to understand being born again as something of a, a, a analogous to a satori, where one has a introduction to the possibility and the grounds for inspiration and direct belief, and the invitation to really now practice? Yeah, uh, D. T. Suzuki. Um, 
and, and I believe Thomas Merton as well, said it's, it's very hard to have discussions east and west because the ideas are, are we, we often in, in English share the same language mm-hmm. um, and there is an overlay between the two traditions, um, but they're different. But as a generalization, I would agree with that, uh, what you've just said. Mm-hmm. But to be born again, considering we're dealing with the grandeur, to steal from Hopkins, seeing as we're dealing with the grandeur of God, we need to be born again, 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 again. Because God's grandeur is without end. Well, right. God is without end. The experience of God is without end. And to use an illustration that the mystics would have no problem with is and applied to my own life or the life of anyone who uh, is married and enjoys sexual experience, it would be like saying, well, I've had sex with my partner. That's good for me. And I don't ever have to have that experience again. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, We enjoy sex. We want the ongoing encounter. And put within the spiritual tradition, we want an ongoing encounter with God. And if if we don't want that ongoing encounter, there's something wrong with our spirituality. Um, one of the things that I frequently said from the pulpit, which I believe to be generally true, is if you're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, after God, there's something wrong with you. Uh, there, there is a problem in your spirituality when you don't want that intimacy. It doesn't mean that you're not in a relationship with the living God. What it means is probably there's something that's just off. Because we, with our partners, want that sexual intimacy. With God, it is inherent, if we've had the encounter, to want that encounter again and again and again and again and again. And to a certain degree, as odd as this may sound, the encounter becomes so natural that it's you're living it. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I'm interested then in the... Uh, the way that you describe the encounter in very intimate and personal terms, um, because some traditions, particularly Eastern traditions, tend to be less personal. Uh, and I think what I'm trying to explore with this question is, are these styles or modes of expression uh, to describe a an objective relationship with all that is, that is inherent in every tradition, or is there something unique about the experience of the intimacy, the personal, the uh, the, uh, the 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 personalness of it that might be different, or just objectively different than an impersonal uh, religion? I think the objective always has to be subjective. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a relationship with my wife. I can say I objectively have a piece of paper and I was objectively wed by an Episcopal priest Mm -hmm. and objectively my wife and I pilgrimage through life together. But is that enough? No, it is not. There has to be the subjective encounter moment by moment, day by day, in order to ride out the conundrums and the questions and the hardships and the heartaches that people have, the, 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 um, the unanswered questions, what was the doubts. Mm. 
we have to have the subjective on a on a moment by moment basis in order to weather that well. So, so what I'm hearing then, in, in a, if to use the language of sort of head, heart, and body, that uh, the it's the awakening of the heart in this relationship. It, 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 that it is not just you know the objective seems to be the realm of the head in the sense that we can sort of articulate distinctions that describe sure. relationships, but the lived experience or the uh, Heartfelt experience is the experience that you're describing. Correct. Uh, Henri Nouwen refers it to the way of the heart. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And would you say that that is, uh, in, a, in a sense, then, uh, the, the, the seat or the center of the mystical then? Yes, absolutely. But in a very odd way, too, because, again, going into words, um, the, the heart is lived very practically in our day-to-day life. Um, if, if uh, again, using Brother Lawrence, if I pick up a piece of straw, I'm engaged in a spiritual act. If I do it in the presence of God, if I have a bowel movement, without exaggerating, it's a spiritual movement. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do that in the presence of God, uh, if I'm living that way, there isn't a thing that I experience in life that isn't or can't be sacred. And I want to live within the capital S sacred who is God and the small s sacreds of other people's lives who live real lives in a real world of broken people who have real needs. So this is coming back then to the sacred as often as you can possibly remember to do it. To live in it, yes. To be it. <laughs> to be it. Well, to live in it is to uh, lose the distinction between oneself and the sacred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often been said that uh, those who are really humble don't know it. Well, I think that applies to this as well. You really don't know it. You're just living it. Mm-hmm. Well, since you've been talking a little bit about relationship here, I, I was intrigued. You, you in another... Uh, seedbed.com piece, you start off with a quote that I found uh, quite intriguing, actually, uh, by a woman named Mildred Bangs Wincoop. Yes. Sounds like a very Dutch name. (laughs) She she was a a Nazarene theologian. Okay. Well, I want to ask more what that means in a moment, but first I'll just read the quote, which is, love is a quality of response between persons. I thought that that intrigues me because... um, I mean, I, I w- it, it makes a lot of sense to me if we include persons to, to not only include human persons, number one. Um, but um, it strikes me as being something that um, speaks to the differing experiences that we have of responses between that we have with it with the people that we meet in our lives, whether it's the person we wake up in bed with or the person at the checkout counter, etc. So, um, so that's an arena, as I'm hearing you um, state it, where, where actually if we, if we take seriously what you're claiming, then that's the arena of mysticism right there. And we can access the subtleties because quality of response is um, 
It directs our attention in a certain way. I think that's why I like the quote so much. It directs the attention to um, what's arising in us as we're in relationship with another person or being. Mm -hmm. And it also simultaneously puts attention on the understanding of the experience of that other being. And that's a, re that's a, that's a really, really rich arena of awareness, it seems to me, which is why I like the quote. Mm -hmm. So if, I don't know if you have anything further to add or, or your own take on why you, why you uh, used this quote. There, there are, I, I've forgotten the exact words you used or I, word, I used, but uh, Coop's mm -hmm. quote illustrates for me that in any relationship, love grows or it's dying. You're either moving ahead or you're falling behind. Mm -hmm. You're recovering or you're relapsing. Mm -hmm. Using the illustration from my wife, was I loving my wife when I brought her cut flowers for a number of years? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but when she said, I don't want cut flowers, I want a plant, if I then decided it's cut plants that you get because that's my expression of love to you, then it ceases to be love. Mm -hmm. I have to move to the next level of love, which is I bring a plant. Mm -hmm. Or my wife might say, you'll really express love to me if you don't buy me anything because we don't have enough money right now and we can't afford plants or cut, uh, cut flowers. Mm -hmm. um, love has to be growing that way. Mm -hmm. But we also, I think, need to understand what love is and what love is not. I'm, a, as I believe you are, uh, a child of, of the 60s. Mm -hmm. And there are a great many things I love about the 60s. I am still in my uh, uh, aged state a child of the 60s. I, I still hold as uh, an evangelical, believing Christian to many of those ideals I held in 1967, 68 through 1974. Um, all of that said, um, I have now lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> all of that said... Um, it's about the growth of love. Yeah. Love isn't, isn't fixed. It, it, it grows as we grow. Mm -hmm. And... It, uh, in some ways, because of the 60s, <clears throat> we, we have these ideas about what love is, which really isn't love. We're in love with the oh, idea of love, but we're not really loving. And so one of the things we as a society, I think, need to do is understand that everything we think of as love isn't necessarily love, like today. Um, love is letting anybody do whatever they want. Well, no, that's not really loving. Mm -hmm. um, and so, on the one hand, we need to respond in the moment to what love calls us to do, give people a cup of water or whatever they need. Um, but sometimes love is also saying no. And we need to maintain that balance. We're constantly... What's the quote by um, her again? Love is a quality of response yes. between persons. Yes. Yeah. I think the quality of the response changes as you go grow in that relationship. And I think we're responsible um, 
in our relationship with God and other human beings um, to respond accordingly. Well, that makes sense because and 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 the the thing about the quote that um, that I value is is it, it's it holds as precious the simultaneity simultaneity of response between both parties if it's if we're imagining a dyad mm-hmm. to two persons or beings mm-hmm. together and and c s Lewis has suggested um, that Love is always expanding. It's always making room for more. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you break the bonds of certain relationships. As an example, in certain ways, my wife and myself have a unique, restricted relationship. But if that's all there is, there's a problem. It's always, if it's truly love, moving out beyond ourselves and our immediate family to friends to those who are our neighbor, to those in the broader world, to those who are our enemy. It's, it's constantly growing. And um, I think that's a wonderful thing about living the life of God because I can honestly say within myself, before I experienced the living Christ and sought to live within that relationship, I didn't love too many people. And the ideas of love that I had were pretty screwed up. Um, and that's totally been changed for me since encountering Christ 40 years ago and since encountering Christ first thing this morning and encountering Christ in this conversation with both of you. Um, we're constantly responding and uh, responding love is the way to go. Got it. And Sorry to overwhelm you with information. Not no, it's fine. Uh, the, you know, the other. Um, I'm, 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 I'm uh, less easily overwhelmed than you may think. <laughs> uh, the, another question that, or thing that came out in, in this discussion about love is the sense that uh, love also um, asks of us a certain kind of risk and a certain kind of uh, trust. And I was thinking of an example that um, you know that's come up that with parents today that. Uh, they may think they're being loving by being very protective and uh, uh, creating a kind of safety for their kids, and yet um, you know, there's thinking that suggests that that actually doesn't set the kids up for uh, the flexibility they need in their life as adults, and that it's important to both trust God and to take the risk to sometimes let your kids go off by themselves. Mm-hmm. And not not think that the world is a Fox News world out there where right. there are you know murderers behind every uh, bush, mm-hmm. and and that can be difficult because there's lots of different ways that for uh, love to grow, there has to be a risk, there has to be a surrender, and the tension that I uh, certainly experience in myself, and I observe this in other people as I wrestle with the expression of love, is the countervailing. Uh, uh, habit of contraction, of safety, of, uh, of uh, you know, isolation. And so to go out further is to open ourselves and to make ourselves vulnerable in sublime ways. And it's an interesting, you know, to me that's a practice in its own right because uh, it's never comfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet for something to grow, uh, comfort usually has to be um, uh, put to the side and one has to open oneself up to the unknown. I think as, as, as parents um, and just as people, we need to, to learn to live with the 
absolute freedom and liberty that we possibly can live within without it becoming license. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mentioned earlier um, Paul's statement, for me all things are permissible. I actually believe in my relationship with the living God, with Christ, that I have absolute freedom to behave in any way that I want. And it will not change a whit God's orientation towards me or the love that God has for me and other human beings. It does not change a whit, no matter what I do or don't do. Um, I want to live in absolute freedom and absolute liberty. But I believe it was Kierkegaard who said to live in absolute liberty means as well that we have absolute responsibility. And so living the balance between liberty and license of um, permissibility and profitability is something we all need to learn to do. And letting go and letting God um, is an important discipline. We try to hold on to hold, hold on to our ideas, our ideals, our, our, our people, um, our churches, whatever it may be, far too um, graspingly. And letting go is a, is, is a good discipline. There's a notion in the um, uh, Fourth Way tradition or the Gurdjieff work that, um, which Gurdjieff himself referred to as esoteric Christianity. So there's mm-hmm. always a kind of a tie-in there to the uh, 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 Christian inspiration. But that's the idea of uh, relieving the suffering of God. Mm-hmm. And the way I understand what you just said is that we are, you know, as you said, that we can do anything and it doesn't change our, the you know God's relationship to us, but some of our actions relieve the suffering of God, and some of the action and some of our actions can increase the suffering of God because the suffering of God is the suffering of all beings. Mm-hmm. And so, to act to relieve suffering uh, seems like a reasonable, re- reasonably reliable compass to. Um, fulfill our obligation or fulfill our relationship. It's not even an obligation because, as you said, if you, if you love someone, you know, it's like you get the message ultimately uh, that maybe this time God doesn't like cut flowers. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this time God doesn't like, uh, you, know, um, you know, beef or something like that. Then, then we can uh, mm-hmm. uh, adjust and, and relieve that suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good way to put it. St. Irenaeus said... The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And God wants human beings to be all that it means to be fully human and live fully into that. And part of that is recognizing that a great many people in our world aren't living fully human lives. And part of that has to do with suffering. Sometimes it's self-imposed suffering uh, sometimes things have happened to them. Sometimes it's choices in life. But our role is, at least in part, I use the word, the exercise of mercy, um, relieving the suffering. Yes, absolutely. That is our role. And to relieve, uh, I, I think God is entirely in some ways transcendent and in some ways entirely imminent. Um, but as a generalization, yes, God does suffer with our world. And he, uh, more precisely the God self, because I don't believe God is male or female, um, 
God is vitally connected to the struggles and the sufferings and the estrangement that human beings experience in their day-to-day life. And to relieve that is to participate in the life of God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I want to, we're getting towards the end of our conversation, but uh, and there's um, one aspect of your work that I wanted to explore a little bit, and that's um, your work as an artist, a poet, a writer, etc. So in, uh, and in another piece um, that I found um, and read online, you start uh, this article by quoting from the uh, epistle, uh, second uh, epistle to the Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you go on to say from that, it is generally understood, although not entirely appreciated, that when St. Paul used the word workmanship, he was in fact using the word from which we derive our word poem. And that was really interesting to me, just mm-hmm. my little aside here. Mm-hmm. As such, an alternative to translation of Ephesians 2.10 might suggest that Christians are the poetry of God. This provides a poignant image regarding both God's intention and our design. In the few words that follow, I will briefly outline several, several ways Christians are human poetry. Thinking about how, how I would frame these words, I began paging through Malcolm Geat's excellent text, Faith, Hope, and Poetry. I hoped to find a functional definition of poetry around which to organize my thoughts. Upon reflection, however, I decided that defining the word would diminish the mystery of its transcendent nature. To compose good poetry means that in some way we must embrace a mystery. Human beings, like any great poem, are mysterious and yet revelatory. Although we may know many things about the human person, a great many things evade our understanding. Mm -hmm. So one of the um, things that uh, pop up for me, or popped up for me when reading this, um, was the um, our own teacher, Stuart and my teacher, had had a phrase that he, he, he frequently repeated and that um, can be expressed slightly differently, but it's basically lit, um, uh, is that um, living a, um, you might say, I'm, I'm, I'm rephrasing here, mm-hmm. living a work of God um, creates a, um, a life that is itself a work of art, mm-hmm. and, and and I'm seeing that, that that's kind of a, re, a restatement of what of what you are writing here about humans as God's poetry. Um, so talk about that and 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 your understanding of how that would be meaningful to people to understand their lives as that um, description. Human beings are a wonder. Um, They are using, again, the word of St. Irenaeus, a a glory. Mm -hmm. And most people in the world, um, myself at times included, um, because of all the hardship and the heartache, don't see the glory. Hmm. Um, We are in the process of writing our own lives. 
in some way we have a blank page and no matter what has gone before there is a narrative and we may not always like what that narrative looked like looked like um, I'm not a big fan of Bukowski uh, <laughs> maybe some of our early life looked like Rambo or Bukowski or somebody else but the glory is that we have an opportunity now uh, to, to rewrite the pages of our life to be the glory that God intended us to be and I think it's helpful for people to understand that we are not using the words of Francis Schaeffer just a chance configuration of atoms uh, we're not just here we have a poignant purpose to fulfill and our lives can be and are intended to be living poetry that transforms not only our lives but transforms the world um, I think Dana Joya, he lives around here somewhere uh, asked the question probably 20 years ago uh, why poetry? Mm -hmm. um, well because poetry really is in essence, who God has created us to be. We are God's living language, and we are called to live it well and to create beauty in the world, just like a great novel creates a different environment for the world. A great book creates a different world. Um, we are the great literature of the world, and we need to learn to write it well. Hmm. So that, for me, is important. There's another aspect that arises for me in the, in the uh, analogy with art and that's the sense that one's never done an artist is never done mm -hmm. and I find that I, I study uh, the Japanese bamboo flute with a Japanese teacher who looks at where he's at as the beginning it's always mm -hmm. the beginning sure and uh, he even, even though he's one of the great players of the world right and he'll uh share what he's learned with his students in a way to empty himself out so he can learn more but mm -hmm. but it's that sense of always you're always coming back you're always coming back to uh, practice in the moment and uh, expression in the moment and it's always different and it's always unique and it never is this, it will never be the same and it's always deepening sure if you look at Byzantine we were talking about this earlier mm -hmm. if you look at Byzantine iconography which shares a lot with some of the pictures you have mm -hmm. in your meditation room you would think that any Byzantine art from the 5th to the 15th century is pretty much the same because same form same gesture same eye you would think it's completely the same but it isn't uh, each work even though it follows a practice or follows a tradition is so unique that at times you can even pinpoint the person who painted that particular Byzantine icon mm. which is pretty amazing because it's so standard it's it's very hard to tell mm -hmm. um, that's, that's interesting it makes me think of uh, I, I know that uh, Tibetan Tankas have, a, have, have an extremely uh, have a geometry, an internal geometry that isn't visible, um, but a set of mathematical relationships between the position of the eyes and blah blah blah. That um, and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, is, is it similar to that? Sort correct. Of thing? Yeah. And then every element, like every uh, tool or weapon or uh, uh, 
uh, flour and things like that is part of a corpus of standard works. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, but I, I get what you're saying because uh, uh, I've, see, I've seen that in uh, like Tibetan iconography that you, you you look at the work of a master and the work of a student and the forms are all the same, but it, but you see the depth of experience. Mm-hmm. And this kind of reminds me of uh, our friend Jim Wilson, who um, oh yes, uh, is a you know a consummate poet and mm-hmm. is very interested in form and poetry, and it's as though the um, the form the form interacts with the creative vitality of the poem to create something that's beyond the form, but also partakes of the form. And in a way, I guess I see that as uh, what you're saying about the human life. We, we have the form of this body and this kind of world we're in, and yet... We're, we're, we're all different. And an example, again, moving from Byzantine iconography or your iconography to poetry again, Malcolm Geit writes sonnets. George Herbert or John Donne wrote sonnets. Um, both are beautifully done, but even though both are sonnets, they're entirely different. And they reflect not just different ideas and ideals, but the creativity of each individual who writes them. Um, and I think that is, is again, a challenge for every one of us, that there, there is a similarity. We all share the same blood. Um, we all share the same heartache and pain and suffering and difficulties and joys, but we're all unique. And the question then becomes, how do I live that in the world to the betterment of other human beings? And I still stay with my, my, my old statement that life's about being a saint. And that's not going to be the same as everybody else. Saints were pretty unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not all alike, and we're on that path. I hope I answered the question. Well, you did. It, uh, what what um, what comes up for me is that um, when you point out that that uh, human beings or Christians are the poetry of God, um, the observation that arises is that is that um, human beings and Christians can also be poets themselves. Yes. And so, and so it's, a, uh, it's a recursive or uh, um, circular relationship that is the, um, um, the capacity and responsibility to um, enact art lies in both sides of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm wondering if there's anything else you know to say about the the, the human side of um, looking at that, um, looking at um, one's relationship to God in in that way. How does that? Um, so so to say, your life can be a, a work of art um, in the hand of God if you will, creates a kind of, in itself, invites a, a, a sense of reciprocity with deity that um, um, could inspire. And I'm, and I'm wondering if that's some aspect of what you mean by mysticism in the, in the other piece that you wrote, that I mm-hmm. quoted from. It's experience 
lived. <laughs> it's, almo it's almost impossible in some ways to describe unless, unless you've had the experience. Every human being is created, and I'm using Christian terminology here, Judeo-Christian terminology, mm -hmm. in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. We're not cookie-cutter because God is an expanse uh, using Christian Wyman. We're, we're an abyss, mm -hmm. uh, human beings. There is so much opportunity for the expression of diversity um, both within ourselves as human beings and among ourselves as human beings, that most of what we have to offer as individuals, as societies, as cultures, is being left untapped. And to live fully in God means that your life might be a haiku, or you might be a sonnet, or you might be an ode, or you might be a Rothko, or you might be an on and on and on it goes. But to live fully in God is to live fully in the creativity of the creator who is um, that being who has made us and intended us for love. Well, that's a pretty good place to... Uh bring this uh, conversation towards a conclusion. We, we do want to invite you to talk about um, ways that people could contact you if, if they feel so, so moved. Um, also, uh, give us a foretaste of what's, what's next in, in your particular journey as a, uh, as a Christian and a, uh, and a work of poetry. Uh, you have my phone number and you have my e-address. You're free to give it to whomever you believe could be benefited. Then we can post that uh, along with the talk when we do that. Absolutely. Okay. What's next? Um, I like this simple answer. What's next to the best of my ability is obedience. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in a bit of a limbo right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm debating about whether in spite of having read or just written this month two very lengthy articles that have been accepted for publication, I'm wondering whether I should be writing anymore. Huh? Uh, I'm beginning to wonder, because I'm in a period of doubt myself, mm -hmm. uh, not about God, um, but just in regards to where I'm at in life, mm -hmm. um, what's next for me? I, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, it, to be quite honest, uh, I'm, a, I'm in a point of interior despair, mm -hmm. uh, which is a good place to be at, because where the end of man is, the beginning of God is. Mm -hmm. um, and so being in despair isn't fun, but it can be productive. So pray for me. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been uh, uh, a really wonderful, energetic conversation, and we appreciate the time. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been a blessing. Well, it's been uh, it's been our pleasure, and um, um, uh, maybe in another five years, we'll uh, or four or five years, we'll uh, uh, see where you are then, and where this moment of inner despair and outer generosity have taken you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. 
This week on the show, we have presented a pre-recorded conversation with the very Reverend Donald P. Richmond, Doctor of Divinity, a priest in the Reformed Anglican Church, and former chaplain and counselor. He has authored chapbooks and over 500 articles, poetry, and art in a wide array of respected periodicals and journals. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a conversation pre-recorded on March 2, 2019 with Christopher Ives, a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College. In his teaching and writing, he focuses on ethics in Zen Buddhism and Buddhist approaches to nature and environmental issues. His publications include Imperial Way Zen, Ichikawa Hakujin's Critique and Lingering Questions for Buddhist Ethics, Zen Awakening and Society, Divine Emptiness and Historical Fullness, a translation with Abe Masao of Nishida Kataro's An Inquiry into the Good, and a translation with Gishin Tokiwa of Hisamatsu Shinichi's Critical Sermons on the Zen Tradition. He is on the editorial board of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics and is serving on the steering committee of the Religion and Ecology Group of the American Academy of Religion. His latest book is Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage. Join us for that show on Saturday, March 9th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff. Its monthly meeting on first Wednesdays will happen next on March 6, 2019. That's at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us once a month at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about this realistic path to the mystical heart. And at the Thursdays at Mini Rivers event in Sebastopol, the Souls of Viridian with Ian Weaver, local author of Souls of Viridian and Bleed Through. That's Thursday, March 7th at 7.30 p.m. Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Souls of Viridian is Ian Weaver's second novel and continues in the tradition of her visionary style, combining history, culture, and mysticism. Can a 15th century healer living in the shadow of medieval superstition, an 18th century woman struggling at the dawn of revolutionary France, a modern-day lesbian artist traveling to California, a middle-aged widower searching for a new life and an apparition appearing from another dimension have anything in common? Can their destiny influence the future? Souls of Viridian takes you on a holographic journey of expansive possibilities. 
As a seasoned storyteller, Ian Weaver will give us a glimpse into this mystical path of her writing, sharing magical stories that contribute to creating her latest work. Ms. Weaver will discuss her gifts as an intuitive artist and healer in creating her characters, as well as the synchronicity of her historical and environmental research for Souls of Viridian. Ian Weaver began her career as the original medical illustrator of the acclaimed book Our Bodies, Ourselves. She has spent her career teaching youth, adults, and seniors both art and writing. She is a member of the International Women's Writing Guild and Redwood Writers, California Writers Club. Ms. Weaver's works reflect her interest in the environment, human rights, including women's and LGBT issues, history, and cosmology. Her first novel, Bleed Through, a soul-filled journey about the absurdity of prejudice, was published in 2013. Souls of Viridian is her second and recently published visionary novel. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send commentary and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.